There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 6 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm really excited to be bringing you this new season of shows coming to you on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. I have a great lineup of fascinating conversations with incredible musicians, songwriters, guitarists, steel guitarists, drummers, composers, who knows what else. I've been having an incredible time diving deep with these folks, and I know you're going to enjoy listening. Just a reminder that this year I've taken out the short song samples through the show, as things have gotten way more complicated as far as legal use of music goes, so I'll be making an accompanying Spotify playlist to each episode, which you'll find in the episode's show notes and at the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So anytime you hear this cute little slide guitar sound, you'll know there's a track to go along with it on the playlist. We have some new sponsors this year, but continue to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription. Patreon is a monthly payment of your choice, and when you sign up for that, you get a bit of added content as well as an ad-free version of the show to listen to. If you don't feel like kicking in any dough, that's cool too, but you can help by subscribing for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just spread the word by sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff, of course, at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, many thanks to our sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know that I sent you. They are Isotope, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, and Spectra 1964. Hey there, music nerds and all other people on the planet. Welcome back. This is episode number 139 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers, and we are nearing the end. We're so close to the end of season six. There is just this episode and one more before the end, and then I'm going to take a little short break while I finish producing the upcoming season seven, and then we'll be back. So hang in there and stay tuned. Anyway, thanks so much for tuning in and listening. My guest today is the world-renowned record producer and engineer, Bob Rock. I would just like to thank my old buddy, Chris Jestrin, who is the one that set me up with Bob. Chris and I have been playing together on albums and gigs and doing all kinds of stuff for years and years and years. And he's my secret weapon on recordings. He's a great keyboard player, and he, but he plays like everything. And now he's Bob Rock's secret weapon because Bob is using Chris on everything that he's doing. So yay for that, and yay to Chris for teeing up this conversation. Hope everyone's doing great out there. I've been mixing up a storm here. It feels good to have all my equipment up and running and everything that I'm comfortable with all kind of moved in here and, and ticking away, and I, I feel like I'm doing some pretty good mixing work these days. It's funny how things like that, new avenues in your life, your professional life develops sort of unexpectedly. For probably the first 10 years I was producing and making records, I would always farm out the mixing to somebody else. But as I learned more and listened and learned how to get the sounds 
to do what I wanted them to do and, uh, you know, just gradually started doing my own mixing. And now I pretty much mix everything that I produce. And I don't know if it'll always be like that, but I'm really enjoying it right now. And over, for the last 10 years, I've been really enjoying it. And it's uh, sort of developed and it's become a skill that I find really exciting. And I like honing it and improving on it. And, you know, for an avenue of music that was never really something that I knew about when I was starting out or anything uh, as a guitar player, it's uh, now a pretty big part of what I do. And I'm happy for that. So yeah, I'm right smack in the middle of recording a couple projects right now for some killer Canadian artists who've hopped on down here to work at the Hen House. And we're pretty buried in, in it right now, but I'm squeezing in, the, in this little intro and, and this interview I did with Bob was a few weeks ago. And uh, so I'm able to get this out in the middle of these sessions. And at the same time, I'm also getting ready to release a new album called Eyes Closed Dreaming, and I'm going to be heading out on tour in April. So hope to see some of you fine folks out there. It's only Canadian dates in April and early May so far, but we'll see what happens. But you can stay tuned on all that stuff at, at my website if you're interested, stevedawson.ca. Uh, a couple of reminders before we get going here. One is for the Hen House Hang, which is happening here at the Hen House, my studio, in September 25th through 28th. It's going to be a really cool four-day seminar on recording and learning some techniques and bringing a bunch of people in and learning the different instruments and the ropes of recording Roots and Americana or whatever you call it, all that kind of cool stuff. There's just a few spots left, so hit me up if you're interested in finding out more. You can get info at stevedawson.ca, and there is a link to the Hen House Hang on the front page, so check that out. Then just a reminder to anyone interested in helping out the show, if you sign up to the Patreon, which can be as little as just a couple bucks a month, you will be entered to win this cool Union Tube and Transistor Seaverb reverb pedal. And I'm giving it away at the end of the season, which coincidentally is two weeks from now. Um, next episode is the last one of the season. And at the beginning of that show, I'm going to give away this Union Tube and Transistor pedal. So yeah, that's going to be cool. You can support the show in other ways too, but Patreon's a great way to do it. And you can get info on how to do that over at the show's website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. And thanks to Jim Sendak for signing up this week and for his support and for everybody else's ongoing support. I really appreciate everybody. And it's all very helpful to keep the show up and running. So on the show today is Bob Rock. And I don't know, maybe you're thinking, Steve, you don't normally get massive gods of rock on this show. What gives, man? Well, I'll tell you what gives. Bob is, he's a nice little Canadian boy like myself. And while he's from Winnipeg, he cut his teeth in the Vancouver studio scene. And my involvement in that world of recording in Vancouver came along quite a bit later. So we never crossed paths. But we do have a lot of mutual acquaintances, as, as it turns out. And we work with some of the same folks. And the studio that he did so much of his famous work in was physically connected to the studio that I did most of my work in. His was called Little Mountain. And then there was this um, loading bay in between, or there still is actually. And that is, funnily enough, the loading bay that they made all these huge rock drum sounds in. And then on the other side of that is a studio called The Warehouse, and it's now called Hipposonic. And that is where I used to make records all the time. And I also shot some videos in there recently that are all coming out now, like some live performance videos. So if you track any of those down on my website as well, you will see Hipposonic, which is, I, I think it was the B or C room of Little Mountain, which is where Bob did the biggest chunk of his work. So we never met at, or crossed paths. We were really working in completely, completely different worlds. But he worked as an engineer for Bruce Fairburn, and that's where things got really close to me because I taught Bruce Fairburn's kids the guitar. 
it was kind of a weird, fluky thing. But Bruce Fairburn called me out of the totally out of the blue one day. I didn't know him. He just cold called me and asked me if I would teach his kids guitar. <laughs> so I ended up doing that for a few years, and they were super cool, and we had fun, and I taught them some a few hot licks and a few not so hot licks. And uh, that just happened. And I did that for a few years. And Bruce was always really nice and invited me down to the studio to see some sessions sometime. So I got to see him producing the Cranberries, the Scorpions, Yes, and Kiss. Well, it, it, it was a Kiss album, but Kiss wasn't actually there. I don't even know if Kiss actually really played on that record, to be honest. But uh, it was a Kiss album. But I did get to see the rest of those bands, like the Scorpions, which was pretty cool, I got to say. So this Vancouver scene that I'm talking about was totally nuts. Bruce Fairbairn was one of the big players. Well, really the main big player, I guess. But from that scene also came a slew of really talented engineers, like Bob was one of them. Uh, Randy Staub, I'm pretty sure, came through that school as well. Mike Fraser, one of the great mixing engineers. Mike Plotnikoff. And that whole crew went from making some decent-selling Canadian rock records in the early 80s for bands like Loverboy, Prism, and Honeymoon Suite. They grew into this juggernaut of recording some of the biggest-selling rock records of all time. Aerosmith, Pump and Permanent Vacation, Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet, Motley Crue, Kiss, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was nutty. And I got to see a tiny little corner of it. But you know who got to see a whole bunch of it? Bob Rock did. Why? Because he was engineering those records and mixing them as well. And then he set off on his own and worked with bands like The Cult and a little band called Metallica, making a little album called The Black Album. It's insane. He worked with Metallica a bunch over the years. And later on, when they reunited for a later record, they made a movie of that process. And I don't know if you've seen it or not. It's on Netflix. It's called uh, Some Kind of Monster. It's nutty. If you want to see some band drama, go watch that movie and you'll see Bob in action dealing with these maniacs. It's it's quite something. It's on Netflix. Anyway, Bob has been picking and choosing projects that he feels like taking on these days, and he's had some great success with bands like The Tragically Hip, um, Michael Buble, Jan Arden, Brian Adams, and a whole ton more stuff. He's got a studio over on Maui, but like me, he loves to work at the warehouse in Vancouver, which is a fantastic studio there. We both seem to think that it's one of the greatest studios in the world, and he knows more studios than I do, I'll tell you. So from his early days playing blues in Victoria to his own hits with the Paolas and Rock and Hyde to taking over the world of hard rock, one massive album at a time, right there in little old Vancouver, please enjoy my conversation with Bob Rock. We have some mutual friends, actually, and um, uh, it's so cool that, that you're working with Chris Jestrin these days. He's been my secret weapon for 20 years. We're the exact same age, and we went to school at the same time and everything, and He's just amazing. Yeah. I love working with him. He was, it's, it's great to have somebody of his caliber in Vancouver to discover. Yeah. 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 The thing that's so cool about him is he like, he can do all the amazing keyboard things that you ever want, but he doesn't necessarily, like, he's not really versed in it amazingly. Like I know when he was working with you, you guys were doing some Brian Adams stuff and he was trying to cop the original keyboard parts that were done by Bill Payne from Little Feet, of course. And Bill Payne's been on my show, actually. But uh, he, when I was talking to him about it, he's like, yeah, some guy named Bill Payne did the piano parts. And I was like, yeah, and it's Bill Payne. Yeah. yeah. But he'd, ne he'd never heard of him. So, you know, like for a keyboard player of his caliber, and he can do all that stuff, but he just like doesn't necessarily know anything about Little Feet or, uh, or other bands. Yeah. You know, it's really funny, but it's so cool. And he, uh, I just worked with him on the Paul Rogers album that I oh, did. Oh, wow. And 
and Paul was just blown away. Okay. Every well, I'm used to it, but uh, yeah. So uh, we kind of did. Uh, we finished off the album with Paul, and it was. Uh, I got Keith Scott from Brian Adams Band awesome. and, and Chris, and it covered all bases. Yeah, man. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, I saw him do a. a he was doing a. a, a jazz quartet show that like his own group and the the bass player didn't show up so he just pulled out the the b3 foot pedals and played like insane bass lines the whole night while he was playing yeah. too and like i've never i didn't even know he could do that well this is this is the thing with chris is like you know because uh uh when i got, I got to know him he pulled you know i said do you play b3 and he got out there and it was <laughs> oh yeah he plays b3 yeah yeah yeah, there's there's yeah. not a lot of guys that are that good at like all the things, you know. Like sometimes there's a great piano player, but he doesn't yeah. get the B three thing or vice versa or whatever. But yeah, to be able to do all the voicings in the B three and to be able to work it like like a real guy, like yeah. the the guys that do it, yeah. right? He does yeah. that, no problem. Yeah. So there's a lot of things I'd love to talk to you about, and and actually the the whole Vancouver thing is like fascinating to me because I I grew up there and I came up kind of like after you'd already hit a certain level. And there's this whole thing of your history before that that I'd love to talk about. But there's a thing that I heard you talking about on, I think it was another interview somewhere or it might've just been on some show or something. And I got to ask you about this, but you're talking about how you were really fascinated with certain sound, certain tones, like guitar tones, and that you'd gone out and for some reason you you were fixated on... Jimmy Page's guitar sound from the first album, I think, like Communication Breakdown yes. or something. So you'd gone out and got all the gear, like got all the, got the right guitar, the exact amp, the all the, everything, and tried to recreate the sound. And I love that. And I want to know, like, is that A, true? And B is like, do you have, have you done that on like multiple times for different? Oh, yeah. Really? It's pretty much all my favorite guitars. So guitars. I mean, um, <laughs> You know, uh, when, I, you know, my dad didn't have a lot of money to to buy great equipment. So I like had a Kent guitar and I had a Heathkit amp. And when I played gigs, the Heathkit amp was solid state. It would blow up and I'd have to, <laughs> I'd have to reset it halfway through a song and stuff like yeah. that. So uh, let's put it this way. When, uh, you know, I worked, um, I think I forget when I, how old I was, like 17, I worked all summer uh, washing dishes and I, I managed to get like $225 and there was a Les, a, a Les Paul standard, a 1960 Les Paul standard that was butchered a bit, but I bought my first guitar then. I mean, I was totally from the word go seeing the Beatles and the Stones on Ed Sullivan. That was and, the thing for you. I right? mean, well, yeah, it was my, my sister, uh, my older sister, Sue, you know, um, she, you know, she had a big influence because she brought all the uh, all the music into the house. Right. But, you know, like, for instance, um, and it's kind of great because. Uh, like, I actually saw the Beatles when they arrived in Winnipeg, when they were going to New York on, you know, they'd never been to America. They got out and waved and I was there. I saw they stopped them. in Winnipeg or they did a gig there. Yeah, they stopped in Winnipeg for fuel, really? right? And my mom, whose best friend was uh, worked for Air Canada, she said, Grab the kids, come to the airport. So we jumped in the car and we actually saw them. Oh, crazy. You know, yeah. So that 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 started it. And I, I got some guitar lessons. My dad, my dad would work on Saturdays downtown Winnipeg and I got some lessons. And 
you know, since then it's been my whole life. So, so know? that particular thing that you did with the Jimmy Page sound, because like that's something that I would do if I had the dough to do it. It's awesome. Um, now, like, yeah, it's 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 kind of it's kind of funny. Uh, during COVID, I managed to drag out all everything. Like I had the Jimmy Page, but I was obsessed with that because why, why that particular sound? So I bought the original Supro. I mean, the, really, the two. Probably the biggest imp, uh, impact to me were two albums. I went to Hudson's Bay in Victoria and bought Led Zeppelin one yeah. the day it came out because I knew it was coming out. And the second album is Truth. Those two albums basically were, I was obsessed with both. To me, they they still hold up. Oh my God. You yeah. know, I put them on, they're, they're just like, they're just, they're perfect. <laughs> in every way you know they to are, me yeah. sonically yeah. musically everything that's that's my starting point and that's that's my true roots um so let's have one it's it's just you know I, I i put it on in my truck i do it like once a week at least and i still get the same rush i did when i was 14 when it came out mm -hmm. uh, so um you know when i could afford it i found the actual same model of the, the Supro. Okay. And, uh, you know, so I got that and I I, I have a good friend uh, with Alexander Dumble okay. and he's modded other amps for me. And um, so I said, I had that. And he says, well, I'll go through it for you. If, if, cause he was, um, I guess because Jimmy Page, he knows the guy that did you, Jimmy Page's model, right? Okay. So Alexander wanted to know the, the circuitry. So I sent it to him. And then he explained all the inputs, right? Which I didn't, I wasn't keen to, like I didn't really realize it. And every input has a different sound. There's, are there four inputs on that amp or something? Yeah, okay. every one you can hear on Led Zeppelin one and all the other ones. Whoa! So he he's the guy and he cleaned it up yeah. and then it was to find the proper Jensen speaker so it got and that deep possible for fun. yeah nice. um, and he put in he put an extra speaker uh output so i wouldn't have to change the baffle yeah to keep it original um so anyway so uh i found a jensen yeah. you know same era like early yeah, 60s yeah. probably yeah yeah it was recone but that's fine yeah. um and uh so uh, you know and i've got a 59 esquire okay you know with the rosewood neck, yeah. which is the guitar. Yeah. So in you know, so I just I set it all up, and I, you know, communication breakdown and good times, bad times, and I'm going. Oh my god! I'm going like this is it, and then I went almost, <laughs> and I'm going like <laughs> I can't swear, but you yeah, know, you can, you actually. imagine what I said. And so I went on the internet, and 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 somebody said, uh, "Well, Paige always used the JM one." Right, uh, a JM one or JP one. Okay, and that's a that's an Echoplex. Yep, but it's a tube Echoplex. Now, just in the past, I got Mick Rouse's Matahoople tube Echoplex. Whoa! So I dragged it out. Yeah, and the tape didn't work, but it was all about the preamp. Right. Put that, and it's it. That's probably a big part of it. It is. So I I went bam bam, and it was it. Oh my God, that's so cool. But so, I don't play like him. I can't right. play like him, but it's the sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the sound. So I was happy. And, you know, like I've got the, you know, Led Zeppelin 2, I've got the exact Vox, really? you know, head. 
I've even got the, uh, what is the Tom Tom Echo? Yeah. And I've got the Rickenbacker cabinet. And I brought out my real 59. Oh, my God. And it's like, bring it on home with the 15 and the 12. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's, it's, see, I just got, as they you call just got it, goosebumps. Boy, chicken skin goosebumps. <laughs> so I'm completely a kid. Yeah. I've got all the Gilmore stuff. I mean. So have you done that with like a bunch of players and a bunch of albums where you've gone deep and like collected all the gear from that particular record? That's basically, that's been my obsession uh, since since I first started. So, so basically because of the payolas, uh, I got a check uh, for the the first check I got for payolas. And I decided that any money I made for music, I was going to buy the equipment because I always bought something that would inspire me. Yeah. And I've been doing it for like 40 years or whatever. See, for me, it's like a, for me, it's like a hundred dollar guitar pedal. That's how, that's how I scratch that itch. <laughs> um, but you see what I found is every instrument I bought inspired me. Like yeah. for instance, uh, I was listening to Natty Dread and I noticed that some of the tracks that they were playing onto a drum machine Yeah, and which was like, what is that? And I asked people and I forget who it was told me. It's a CP78. So I bought a CP78. Yeah. And I fiddled around with, and I got this thing, and that's Eyes of a Stranger. Oh my God. That's so cool. So I was I was playing my acoustic guitar and I wrote the bass line. Yeah. Now, let's say it's not unlike No Woman, No Cry, but that to me, that was the inspiration. That's where it came so from. So that that, you know, so I got that machine and I got Eyes of a Stranger. And then where's love? I bought an 808. Wicked. program the 808 because <laughs> yeah so so that's been my obsession and you know when i started to make some money and i could afford these things you know like um like for instance i used high watt amplifiers uh david gilmore and what it was is pete townsend was huge for me okay because i distinguished pete townsend as a guitar player that the most important thing was song and sonics yeah. You know, yep. and the, his rhythm playing, you know, totally so many people, they're great, like amazing lead guitarists and blah, blah, blah. Their rhythm playing's okay. Yeah. So I thought I'm not, I'm not a superhuman. I'm not Jeff Beck. I'm not, you know, that kind of guy. Um, so I concentrated on being a great rhythm guitar player. And so Pete Townsend was pretty much the guy for me. Okay. And so I used high watts as soon as I could buy them. That's a lot and of power. Well, standard. And, you know, and it continues like everybody, you know, from McRalph's to, uh, I didn't get, I stopped at Leslie West getting the exact, <laughs> the mountain sound that he used. <laughs> the Mississippi which Queen is riff. A sun amplifier. Yeah. Right. I thought uh, he used those, well, I thought he used those customs with the padding on them. Yeah. But in the studio, oh, he okay. used a sun. Okay. And it was a PA, right. Coliseum PA yeah. head with the sun cabinets. And there was a, and it was on eBay. And guess who bought it? Kirk Hammett, <laughs> bastard. Yeah, well, you can borrow so it's, it. It's, you know, this is the thing. So that's been, you know, if people collect all sorts of things. It's my passion. Yeah. So and you know, I found a Les Paul, found a Les Paul, and, and it for whatever reason said Gibson guitar for sale. So I went, and it was a '53 Les Paul, real one, for like twelve hundred dollars. Okay, but it had house paint on it, and somebody had changed the pickups in the bridge. It was beat up. Yeah. So I grabbed that, and I kind of fixed it all up. And then I heard about a guy, and oh, I'm forgetting his name, and that's a drag because he's amazing. 
this guy in Vancouver, my friend Chris Trainer, told me about him from Bush, mm-hmm. uh, told me about him, and uh, I he converted it. Okay. And the, okay, so he converted it. He's an amazing real PAS everything. But Paul Kossoff was such a huge influence on me, yeah. especially the sound of All Right Now. Yep. When I heard that, it was like, huge. oh, my God. Anyway, so I got an, I got him to match everything. <laughs> I love it. And it's so funny because <laughs> I brought it out with uh, with Paul Rogers. And I said, because when, uh, when I had the opportunity to do Paul Rogers, I mean, I just said, yeah, I'm in. Just yeah. anytime. I brought it out and he said, that looks exactly like it because he owned it, right? Anyway, see, I could go on for days with all of this. Pretty much everybody, like Gilmore, I've actually got a synthy high fly, you know, guitar thing, which is really rare. Wow. Who else comes to mind of, of things that you've collected in, in the spirit of? Like, do you have any Hendrix rigs or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> have you, have Absolutely. You... I've got just actually the... I finally got a 66 Strat. Wow. When I was in Winnipeg, I was working working in Winnipeg uh, at a cardboard box factory because there was no jobs in Victoria. And I saw uh, 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 a cherry red, a candy apple red 66 Strat at a music store. Okay? Yep. So every paycheck, I'd, I'd go and pay $50, right? And somehow the, I lost the job. So I paid off half of it and I had to go home and they wouldn't refund me the money. Shit. So I just about had it, but I finally got it. I finally got one and I, I, I got it from uh, uh, vintage uh, guitar parts, which uh, I forget what the company is. Are they in um, LA or something? Vintage rare. Yeah. Okay. Vintage rare parts. Right. Yeah. And I just built a bastard 66. Awesome. And it, it's great. So I completed the whole thing. And of course, the Marshalls and stuff. There's this great guy in Victoria, BC, a good friend who unfortunately has just passed away, lifelong friend. Um, he had the first Marshall, real Marshall. In Canada? That, in, in Victoria. Okay. You know, Victoria, growing up in Victoria was amazing because there was this great blues scene in Victoria. There was these great guitar players in Victoria, the Norm McPherson, yeah. Tim Zorowski, you know, there was there's all blues bands and Paul Hyde when I was in the pale is we had a band called Paul Kane Blues Band. And we were a blues band. We played blues. Really? Okay. Oh yeah. So you mentioned that you were really into rhythm guitar playing, but were you also playing like were you, you know, digging into the blues stuff as well at that point? Oh yeah. I mean, I yeah. was trying to play, you know, but um I taught myself how to play. So the, the you know, the key things was one of the things was um uh you know uh, Hendrix was a bit out of my league, so I never tried at the be- beginning. You yeah, it know? just seemed like it was from outer space. It was just yeah. like another planet, right? Yeah. But the three guys was Backpage and uh, and Clapton. You know, so um, I just concentrated on that when I started. And, um, you know, and then I saw B.B. King on Ed Sullivan. Mm-hmm. And I just loved the fact that he played about four notes. Yep. And, and you know, his vibrato. Killer. And stuff, and then you know, and that led to Albert King, and then Kossoff is that you know he was a bare bones, like he wasn't particularly he didn't do fast riffs. He Albert King, and he had this beautiful. So those are all the guys. Like in other words, I I went to the guys that I thought I could do, you know. Yeah. 
And then later on, you know, as the older I get, the, the kind of better I get and, you know, whatever. It's yeah. it's a lifelong journey. Um, I wonder if we should talk about Jeff Beck for a second. Uh, this is going to this episode's going to come out in a month or two. And but I should just point out that Jeff Beck died yesterday um, to people listening. Did you have a, ever have a chance to meet him or work with him or anything? Uh, no, really? he's the only, I, I haven't met Clapton and, uh, I never met Beck, but I would say, um, uh, you know, Beck, I think, I mean, I think everybody in the world, like all my friends who are guitar players, I mean, we all just like, he's, we all love Paige and Beck, you know, I love Paige because of, uh, I was attracted to him because he did everything. He was a producer, yeah. you know, everything, you know. Uh, but even Jimmy Page, and actually, I'm a good friend with Jimmy Page, which is just un it's just Amazing. unbelievable. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like I can't even I can, I can tell you stories, but um, it, it, when I was at Little Mountain, uh, he did the Coverdale Page record, so I wasn't on that session, and I was on in Studio A, and they were in Studio B, so I got to got to know him Amazing. and he came to see my band and all this stuff. So when my band Rockhead was touring in, in, uh, with Bon Jovi in Europe at, uh, we were playing Amsterdam and the tour manager said, somebody's here to see you. And it was Jimmy Page. <laughs> and he stood staring at me oh my on God. the side of the stage. And let's say we had a song that was kind of an A minor kind of changed, And uh -huh. I played my double neck. But I actually toured with my 59, my real 59. Really? That's brave. Yeah. Well, I just, I had to do it, you know? That's, um, uh, have you heard the story about my 59? I have not. I'd love to hear it. Okay, so Paul Hyde and I and my, and the drummer we had, Billy Alexander, when we were uh, basically, I guess I was 18, 19. Yeah. We worked at Mr. Mike's restaurant in Victoria. <laughs> we got enough money. We went to- that joint. London. We went to London to be rock stars. Okay. Okay. And the first night we were there, we went to the Marquee, of course. And we could drink beer. The band there was a band called Strider. The guitar player was Gary Granger, okay. who ended up with Rod Stewart. Yep. He had a Sunburst 59. The Sunburst I own is that guitar that I saw. I well, got it up Billy Duffy. Uh, knowingly that did you realize that it was that guitar or you found that out later no i no, i put it all the, like um billy duffy uh wanted to sell it it was before slash and guns and roses broke when guitars went you know 59s yeah. went up again yeah so basically i got it for five thousand dollars right amazing and then then i discovered uh i discovered because uh i bought a when i was in, in england uh, on tour, I got a, a 54 for my birthday from my wife, oh, Telly. Okay, because yes. it's the year I was born. And the guy, Rick, in in England said, you've actually got Gary Granger's Les Paul. And I went, what? <laughs> That's crazy. And then you put it together. You were like, oh my God, that is the one. I that put I it together, yeah. Is it is that a pretty original guitar? Is it like original pickups, original neck, all that stuff? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, it's it's, yeah. Amazing. I mean, I think I lost a couple saddles because I took it on the road and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's got Grovers. It's a beautiful one. I bet. Oh, my God. That's so yeah. cool. So where, like, do you keep your collections? Is it scattered around? Like, I know you've got a place in well, I've Maui got a whole or... pile of stuff in Vancouver. Oh, you do? Okay. 
Yeah, like my conversion and, and stuff there. But it's basically in Maui. Yeah. I have a warehouse and I got a, a, a place where I keep them and okay. and stuff. COVID was the best thing because I dragged everything out. A lot of times when <laughs> I um when I do demos and stuff, it's usually, you know, I'll just like I have I have a telly week where I just bring them all out. Yeah. I I mainly play strats, you know, basically because I've got a 63. It's just like is my baby, yeah, so to speak. And the Les Paul, I'm very careful with it now. So I use my conversion. Okay. And they're pretty similar, right? Mm -hmm. So they're in, in a safe. I got a 50, the 54 Tele, my 54 Strat, and the, the 59 Les Paul are in a safe. Okay. And I just keep them in the safe. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you, do they uh, get played at all anymore or are they just kind of like, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta, you know, I forget the combination. I gotta find the combination, and then I go in there and drag them out. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, I just, uh, I wish I could. I wish I could live in a place where I could have them all. You know. Yeah. But. Yeah. Let me just back up to a couple of things that you mentioned. Like you, you're talking about growing up in Victoria and Winnipeg. So you were born in Winnipeg and moved to Victoria yes. later. Okay. Um, yeah. So when in Winnipeg? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You were going to ask. No, something. no. That's no. Go ahead. Well, the thing is, is that growing up in Winnipeg, of course, I got guitar lessons, but I played hockey, you know, because everybody plays hockey, you know. And uh, so I was playing hockey and my dad, uh, whatever, decided to move to the West Coast. So he kind of left us in Winnipeg and found a job in Victoria. Okay. So this was 14. I was 14. Okay. So we moved to Victoria at 14. Yep. And that was devastating to me. Because I had all my friends, right? Were you playing? And, were you playing by then? Like, did you have a band? And yeah, stuff? I, I I was trying to play. You know, I mean, I was you know, I was playing. Yeah. But it, you know, just on a personal level, it's like, it's I lost all my friends, and you know, I was so mad at my dad. Right. And looking back, he basically started it all because I had no friends in Victoria, so I, all I did was play my guitar mm -hmm. in my room for like two years straight because I couldn't play hockey. There was no outdoor rinks, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, and Victoria, great, because there was a great music store and the blues scene there. And that's... that's Yeah, that blues scene really maintained itself up into the 90s, because when I was starting to play, it was still a thing, you know? And I started playing with Jim Burns in the, in the yeah. early 2000s, and, you know, I know he spent a lot of time over there, too, and he was living there for a while. But that whole thing with, like, Harpo's and, and that whole scene there was really quite something. Yeah, there was this, there's great, great clubs there, Club Tango, oh, yeah. you know, like, uh, like great players. Um, all these guys that were just amazing players. Norman Furston was the guy that played at a 59. So, and the setup, the setup, I got to tell you, the setup in, in Victoria was a super reverb. Okay. Because it was kind of like a Marshall. I talked to David Bedell the other day. Yeah. Right. Vital, I should say. And um, he was in he was in a bad morning star, right? And he played a strat. Was he living in Victoria then? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. He was. Yeah, he had an amazing band of three piece. But everybody played supers because nobody could afford Marshalls, and they had four tens, and yeah. they could. Yeah. Interesting. So I I searched for the perfect super, like a blackface. Blackface. Uh huh. And guess who modded it? Alexander Dumble. And my super now is godlike. <laughs> not back like you didn't know him back in like the 70s oh, did you? oh okay. god no okay how i got to meet um 
Alexander is that uh, uh, Michael Landau, the session guitar yep. player, using him. And uh, I was doing um, Crazy Love. He did the solo on Crazy Love for Buble, yep. right? And, you know, I mean, I knew him because he actually played on a Paola's record, David Foster. Oh, really? So I met him back then, you okay. know. And so, Anyway, so I hired him because he was the only one of the guys I knew. And this, you know, and he... He just handed cables to me. You know, he had this whole setup, the whole right? Rig in, yeah. A whole rig, yeah, yeah. But a mic and a Neve and everything. And he just said, "Here, just put this in." And I put it in, and it was just like, "What?" <laughs> it sounded incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's he's such a great player. And I said, "What? What is this?" And he said, "It's a Dumble Head, uh, a '59 Bandmaster wow. that he, he modded. that he modded, and um, it was just incredible." And he, and he, I said, what do you mean modded? I thought those amps were like these ones that he hand built. And he said, no, basically Alexander started by modding Fender. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Michael said, I'll talk to Alexander and see if he'll, he'll let you come and see him. So I went to see him. And of course, Alexander, we hit it off right away because I'm a geek and he's a geek. And so now I have eight Fenders, modded Fenders from Alexander oh Dumble. God, that's crazy, man. I mean, those things. Yeah, are... because to me, like, I know it, a lot of guys have the over, like, really Michael Landau and, you know, all the guys, like, uh, and uh, Robin Ford, those guys, I mean, the, the, the uh, Overdrive Supreme or whatever, that yeah. amp. Yeah. They deserve that amp. You know, to me, it's not the right distortion for me. Uh -huh. You know, so, I, so, you know, all the modded fenders are, to me, are, God like so how does that actually play out like you you find uh say a bandmaster or a super or whatever or a deluxe or something and you take it to him and just say go to town or does he does he sort of talk to you about what you're looking for or does he surprise you well the first amp actually michael told me he d has this tweed deluxe yeah the reissued tweed deluxe it's called the tweedle yeah and so he said you might want to start there and alexander said the same thing so i got the the reissue yeah and um it's like the best amp i, I use non-stop it's I, i'm in the studio but i'll tell you a great story about this i play with this new year's gig in 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 maui uh for the food bank yeah and the and the maui arts and cultural center by chef gordon and alice cooper's band is the the house band and you know like um pat and um michael McDonald from the Doobie Brothers plays uh -huh. and like everybody comes, everybody comes and they actually let me play with them, which is staggering. Right? <laughs> so I brought my, my 59, uh, bandmaster that Alexander, I got a reissue of that and he made it amazing bandmaster because most of them, I'm sorry, but they don't sound very good. It's hard to find a good one. Right. Uh, anyway, so I, I, I showed up with that in my deluxe. And they all have marshals. And I started playing. I had my 63 shot, and everybody said, You got to turn down. You're way too fucking loud. Sorry. <laughs> no, you can do so that. I turned you're it loud. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I turned off the bandmaster and just had my 112. And I started playing. They, they stopped and they said, You're still too loud. <laughs> so they put, they, they made me put plexiglass in front of it and played. It's still too loud. They made me turn it backwards. Oh, my God. And with plexi okay that's okay i was louder because of the the strat and what he does 
Right. So does he actually like? Does he kind of gut it and start from scratch, or like how does he make those? Yeah, things- he re he rebuilds it. Okay. But you see that the, the, he 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 knew Leo Fender. Yeah. I mean, he he knows he rebuilt a blackface deluxe. There was a noise in it, and I had to leave by eleven, and I saw him at nine, mm-hmm. and he tore off the whole circuit board. Oh my god! And resoldered the whole thing in two hours. Jesus. <laughs> by memory. Yeah. Yeah, he's a mad genius, or he was a mad genius. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Incredible guy. So you said you've got eight of them. Does each one have a certain character that you know what it does, or are they all kind of similar? What he, what he does is is he makes them, you know, he's got certain mods like, um, uh, well, the Tweedle mod, and, you know, each, um, uh, I forget, um, he had, I'm glad he's not around because he would get so mad. <laughs> <laughs> not being able to remember, but he would understand. He knows me. Anyway, just each amp, all his mods, like um, I've got a twin. And the twin is basically the uh, the Overdrive Supreme, the, the basic amp yeah. is Blackface Twin. Okay. So uh, Ultraphonics, it's called Ultraphonics. Okay. And that, the clean part of that amp is a Blackface Twin. Like a, just so a, I've got a Blackface. Just like a reissue one or did you did you take them? Like no, a, no, no, no. Okay. I had a vintage one. Okay. Those are the only two reissues. Okay. Okay. Uh, Okay, the the, the fifty nine, the and the Tweedle. Uh-huh. Everything else were vintage amps that he made sound great. Uh-huh. Like my Super was the best one I had, and it still didn't sound very good. Yeah, and now it's Ultraphonics, and it sounds amazing. Oh, that's so cool. And he's got, so so I've got the I've got I got to count them. Yeah, I've got eight. So I've got a <laughs> Champ, Billy Champ, which is ridiculous, ridiculous. Uh. I got a the deluxe. I got the I got a super. I've got the bandmaster. Yeah. I've got uh, a fifty nine uh, baseman. Oh, another four ten. Yeah, which is outrageous. I'll tell you, I played on on New, well, not New Year's, December thirtieth, and it was on. We had to we had to face it the opposite way. It was on one, <laughs> and it was too loud. Yeah. <laughs> And then, and then I've got. Um, Does he put different speakers in them too, or are they just? Yeah, mainly Celestians. Okay. And I've oh. got a Blackface Deluxe. Yeah. Which I use all the time. So, the Deluxe. Maybe it's six. No, it's it's eight. I've counted them many times. There. Yeah, I'm sure. Anyway, I'm I've sure. got too many. <laughs> well, if you ever need to leave one in Nashville, you can just park it right here. <laughs> yeah, and you know the thing is, is that he just. Like the, the the deluxe is a perfect example. It's like it's eighteen watts, yeah, man, right? But it's the most beautiful eighteen watts you'd ever heard, and just so efficient. Yeah, it's like it's it's basically how Leo Fender wanted it. That's in a funny way. That's my wheelhouse: is the deluxe that size and that amount of volume. I'd love to hear what Dumble does to a deluxe because that's like that's probably the amp I'm most familiar with. Is the deluxe? Yeah, right mm-hmm. I've got a tweed, a fifty-three deluxe, and then I've got a blackface one, and those they're they're really different, but they're you know those... really different, great tones. Yeah, they really do. Yeah, actually, the combination using like the tweedle and then my blackface um, deluxe, yeah. it's 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 both things, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and we talk for days about everything. Oh, and um, he modded my my Supro. Okay. Right, so that's seven. Yeah, and, and there's another there's one a, somewhere. 
Oh, I got to tell you this. Oh, you know, we were talking and I said that I had a trem face, which is like a fuzz face from the 60s. Yeah. He says, you have one of those? And I said, yeah. And I got, I said, I, I think I have like about six fuzz faces, you know? And yeah. I says, I got an original one. And I said, it's like, they all sound like shit, Alexander. <laughs> he says, well, if you let me have the trem face, I'll do a fuzz face for you. From scratch or or take one of yours and mod it? Take and mod it. Mm -hmm. He did it for uh, Eric Johnson and mm -hmm. all these guys, right? It took like two years <laughs> to get it, right? And it's the most amazing bus face in the world. Quiet. Wow. Beautiful. Overtones for days. Just It just blossoms. It's Wow, so he it's was just, so he was totally hip to all those kind of circuits too. He wasn't just an he knows guy. he he knows everything. Yeah, yeah. When you go, when I went to his house, it's it's like I went to use the washroom and there's there's speakers and tubes in the bathtub. <laughs> he bathes in tubes. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, just um, wow. just a pure absolute genius and just the most amazing man. Yeah, I miss him deeply. Yeah. But... yeah. You were mentioning you, you kind of had a couple of years there in Victoria where you were kind of on your own and learning guitar. Is that where you feel like you got up to a certain level that, that you were actually pretty, pretty good on the guitar? Or did you, like, were you getting enough experience playing with a band yet or anything like that? Or Well, yeah, you know, this is the thing about Victoria, like uh, Club Tanko and there was the Purple Onion. Mm -hmm. And there was the nine and the fifth, another club. They're all blues clubs, right? So there was kind of a bit of a circuit. Yeah. And I had, you know, we just played Stones and, okay. you know. So was Paul Hyde living in Victoria? Is that where you met yeah. him? Yeah. Okay. You see, this is the thing. I met him when, uh, right around when we moved out to Langford. Yeah. And um, he was at the bus. He had a shaved head. Okay. And he was English, so I thought, I got to meet this guy. He looked like a skinhead. And, and he was English. So we became friends right away. And Are you pretty much the same age? Like, were you in school together or anything? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And it was all about music. Yeah. You know, I mean, we just loved everybody that together, like, because I was so enamored with the, the English music scene. So was he into, was he playing in blues bands too? Well, the first one I was in okay. and his was our band. And what was that called? The Paul Kane Blues Band. Okay. And yeah. and you played around Victoria. Did you go, like, was it a thing you took on the road at all? No, we never went on the road. We were too young. Yeah. We were still in school. Yeah. Okay. The first time we went on the road is when we went to England. <laughs> okay. And so yeah. when did you write, start writing songs? Was it in that kind of period? Were you still in high school? No. You know, I mean, um, no, I didn't really know how to write. You know, I fiddled, but it was just, how do you do this, right? Yeah. Uh, writing was really simple. Uh, it's when I started in 1976, you know, we kind of like, whatever, we had to get jobs and, and stuff like that. So, and he moved away to, uh, oh, actually when we went to England, I came back early. He's English. So he lived with, you know, he stayed, he stayed for about a year and a half. He came back and we both ended up in Vancouver. So it was kind of like 78, 79 yeah. or no, maybe 76. I okay. started at Little Mountain Christmas 76. So all of a sudden he was in Vancouver. So we started just jamming and stuff like that. And I had le learned song form and kind of everything at Little Mountain by doing sessions. Okay. Right. 
And so um, that opens a huge can of worms. So, I, I mean, how did you end up at Little Mountain? I, I guess at that time, Little Mountain wasn't really that big of a deal or something like. Well, it was it was it just it was a jingle house. OK. And what happened is that, um, you know, I was in I was in a band in Victoria uh, and I was working in construction and um, uh, basically I heard this ad on the radio on CFOX or something about a recording school for six weeks, one uh, on a Saturday, six weeks in a row for okay. basic recording techniques. And I asked my parents, would you pay for it? Can I do it? So I did. Now, um, so six weeks and learn basic stuff. But how I got the job is the teacher, Roger Monk, I was the only guy that always, when he said, who wants to try? And I went, me. <laughs> like, I wasn't afraid to make mistakes. And you that's what got it. me my gig. So they hired two, uh, the Sunday, they had one on Sunday too. And the other guy, Ron Obvious, or Ron Mullen, he was Sunday. So we both got hired for the same reason. Oh my we God, just... so you go back that far with Ron Obvious too. Oh yeah. So he was, uh, so we both started at the same time at Little Mountain. Okay. You know, and it was all because of Roger. We He picked two guys out of the class. Okay. And realistically, as I say, is I was, I was like not afraid. Most people are like, they don't want to try it, but I was going, I don't care if I make mistakes. I just got to do this, right? You got a job as an assistant or as an engineer? Yeah. No. Oh, God. Not as I didn't know how to engineer. Okay. No, an as, assistant. I started yeah. making tape copies and yeah. assisting. That building, like I did tons of work and tons of records in there, but not on the Little Mountain side over on the, I guess it was the, I don't even know if it was the B room of Little Mountain when you were there, but what was the factory for me? And it's now Hipposonic. And then. Oh, uh, no, it's, it's like, it was uh, basically, there was two studios, three studios. Yeah. A was the big room. Yeah. So you could do strings, etc. They were Neve rooms too. Yeah. B was a smaller room. Um, and C was a post-production room that had an amazing uh production engineer, Dick Abbott. Okay. Just who was the best guy. Uh it was an eight track. So and when I started, we had 16 track scullies. Oh wow. Okay. And eight consoles. And that's in the set in the mid late seventies? What what kind of year? I started so be seven I started Christmas seventy six. Okay. And so how did that go from being a jingle house to to having band like original music coming in there? Because there was a, a lot of punk punk rock stuff happening in there, right? What what happened is that, um, you know, basically during the day, it was jingle house, but there was separate studios. So what ended up happening is Studio A was basically all the jingles were done in Studio A because they did, you know, we that's how I learned to record strings, et cetera, right? Okay. And, you know, I did all those sessions. That was the jingle have, and B was kind of the music. So, like, Valdi was in the hometown band. Yeah. All sorts of people came into B, right? So, and then, you know, when I became an engineer or when I was doing jingles, that's how I learned to engineer. You know, Roger was sick one day, and I, all of a sudden I was an engineer, right? Right. And that's how, so that's how it goes. That's how it goes. And basically, jingles were great because you basically made a record every day. Really quickly, yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? You did basics, uh -huh. you sang it, you mixed it, yep. and it was done. Right. A one-minute right. song, right? Yeah. I talked to Bob Clearman about it. He did that in New York. Oh, wow. Okay. A lot of guys did that, right? Jingles, because you were learning how to mix. So was was Roger kind of your main mentor at that time? Well, there was two guys, Roger and Dave Slachter, both absolutely brilliant engineers. Okay. Dave ended up, well, he did jingles too, but he 
Roger was the kind of the king of the jingles, and Dave, you know, he recorded Baldy and all those that. Okay. The music guy. Okay. But he did it. Those two guys were, they taught me. I mean, I, uh, they taught me everything. They taught me how to listen. They taught me everything, you know. Both came from the English tradition of recording. Okay. Like we didn't even have, I think we had one 421 mic. They were all Neumanns, wow. all condensers. Yeah. I brought the first 57 into Little Mountain. I bought it because <laughs> I saw it on an album cover. So at that time, was it outfitted with like killer mics and consoles and everything? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, Neve consoles. Yeah. And we had, and then we bought Studer tape machines. And this is John Vertasic. He was there when we started, okay. and he is the reason why Little Mountain became Little Mountain. You have to have that guy, and he was absolute genius. He is a genius. Yeah, he was a genius. Amazing guy. So he's a for people that don't know, which is probably a lot of people, but he he was a, a design studio designer and an acoustician and an and an electronics guy. He invented all these crazy like this. Yeah, we're for Altec. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like the JV, uh, the the micro, the guitar splitter, everything. Yeah, that's John Vertasic. Yeah. So he, um, you know, so um, I mean, he helped us all get better because we had. He was there as a tech, or was he engineering there? Yeah, no, he was a tech. Okay, but we and yeah, but people don't know what that tech is. You know, I mean, he. That's all our equipment ran perfectly, always maintaining it. Yeah. Always the line. We weren't allowed to line our tape machines. He did it. Okay. So it was like, he was just perfect. Like I said, he made us sound better, work better. Yeah. Because everything worked, right? What was your What was your learning curve like with learning the, the ropes? Because a lot of people think of you as a producer, and of course you are a very successful producer, but you're also like a very accomplished engineer. And that's like, that was your pathway to producing. Um, where, like, were you immediately drawn to that stuff as the as the jingle work went oh, along? Oh yeah, I never even thought about being a producer. I I you know that that comes down to you know the songs I heard in the radio when I was a kid. I think I'm maybe in, that was the interview you heard. Like when I heard "All Right Now," I was just like the guitar sound on the radio. Yeah, I can. I was I was hitchhiking to Thetis Lake, okay. and I got in this truck, and it came on the radio, and I'm going like, "What is?" what 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 you know the sound and same with honky tonk woman yeah that and then i remember um uh good vibrations yeah. which is not rock that all it's like what's going on yeah and so were you were you able to get in there on your own time and start dicking around with stuff this is a great point uh so when you you know after like a year or whatever you know, I put on tapes and I set it up, you know, and I fiddle around and both Ron and I, then they said, you know, you can pull a tape and, and just mix it. Okay. Right. Now at the point I'd, I'd been smoking pot yeah. as a teenager at that point. And I remember the first mix I did, I smoked a joint and I did a mix and I thought, oh, I'm kind of good. <laughs> right. I listened to it. The next day and it was just dreadful and I never smoked pot again. <laughs> I'm not a pot mixer. <laughs> I don't, I, so I stopped smoking pot well, because I wanted to be good. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's how we learned. And then when punk happened, um, uh, we did, Ron and I did all, all the punk bands. Yeah. So how did that happen? Like, were you, were you in that scene at all or they just came to Little Mountain? Oh no, they, it's like everybody came. Okay. Because yeah. It was the place to record. 
So yeah, and that's how, like I said, we st started making records. Yeah, and we started like I, I, I produced. I wasn't really producing, but I was engineering, and you know, I mean, that's the learning curve. What are some of the early ones? Like you, you did Pointed Sticks records. What are some of the other yeah, bands? Canadians, young Canadians, young Canadians, yeah. uh, the Modernettes. Oh yeah, and I did this band from California that were were big, the Dills. Okay, yeah, who became rank and file and stuff. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. We did everything. He did kind of like the quirkier ones. He did You Jerk and other bands and stuff. Okay. Yeah. So you kind of cut your teeth on on punk rock. Absolutely. I did the Subhumans. He did DOA. Okay. You know. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, but you see, but the thing is, is that you know, the Sex Pistols came out in the Clash, and and UBC Radio played all the alternative stuff. So it, that whole thing just blossomed. And the best thing about this is like um, um, Paul and I, so I let's write a song. So we wrote China Boys. Okay. I basically, I based it, I got to steal something. So I stole the chords on 10th Avenue Freeze Out, right? <laughs> okay. Yep. And I said, so this, and so we put together China Boys and we made it, right? And we recorded it and uh, pressed a thousand. It sold out right away. And we got a record deal on the, the only song we wrote amazing that never yeah. happens never happens everybody hated us because we got a deal yeah AM irs signed us so were you called the paolas already at this point or yeah okay yeah and did you guys have a have a decent following around vancouver at that point or not like were you playing? well we just played with with everybody else okay. you know yeah you know but you guys weren't in the um, punk scene well we, we you know there was a separation before you know they they were pissed off well you know, like every music scene, there's groups of people and stuff yeah. like that. But everybody came to Little Mountain and respected us because we knew how to make records, right? right? Yeah. You know, so, yeah, we got, but everybody was pissed off when we got a deal, you know. <laughs> but it, it it was not something we planned. It right. just, whatever. So that, yeah. I mean, that album, that, the first album that you did with the Paolas, like you guys had a lot of success right out of the gate. Did that take you out of the studio and away from your work there? No, because I had to, you know, I had, I had a relationship. I had kids. Oh, you did already. Okay, yeah, yeah. So very, very young. This show is brought to you by the good folks at Isotope, who make incredible plug-in software for any music or dialogue recording situation. Among other things, they make a very unique suite of software called RX, which you can use to surgically repair almost any kind of issue in a recording, whether it's removing electrical hum unwanted noise, vocal plosives, or almost anything you can throw at it. I use Isotope RX on every mix in one way or another, and I love that I can get in there on guitar tracks that I'm doing and running through my crazy old tube amps and get rid of the hum and noise without affecting the actual tone of the guitar. You can buy their plugins outright or get a subscription to keep up to date on all their latest versions. Right now, they're offering listeners a 10% discount on any of their plugins when you use the code SOULPOD10 at checkout. So head on over to isotope.com slash soulpod, and you'll see the links right there to get the discount or an extended 30-day trial of their subscription service of Music Production Suite Pro. We're also brought to you this season by Black Mountain Picks. These are unique spring-loaded thumb picks that are super comfortable and adaptable. I've been using them for a couple years now, and I absolutely love them. They come in medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and with regular or extra tight spring tension. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. Thanks to our other sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor. 
They're known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing, both on stage and in the studio. I use their Sonebender Fuzz pedal, the Moore pedal, and the Swindle Overdrive pedal all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find them at uniontone.com. And thanks to Spectra 1964. For over 50 years, Spectra 1964 has established a reputation of creating some of the most innovative recording equipment on the market today. From the legendary V610, C610, and 611 complimenter units to the new 500 series lunchbox mic pre's and EQs, Spectra 1964 continues the legacy of providing incredible recording products for the home or professional studio. Check them out at spectra1964.com. And finally, the Hen House Hang. It's a four-day immersive recording experience right here with me at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville on September 19 to 22, 2022. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll put you up in a groovy hotel, feed you some glorious food, show you the ropes of recording roots and Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info on that at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then, let's get back to the show. So was there not pressure to go out on tour and spend your life? Out well, yeah, we, I did. Okay. You know, we did. You know, it's it was kind of, I did both. Okay. I did both. I had to do both. Yeah. I couldn't, I, yeah. Both developed at the same time. We were never big enough that it was like, we didn't tour the States the off the first album. Okay. The second album, when Eyes came out, we toured. So I just did both. And it kind of did a transition because, you know, I stopped being a staff engineer at Little Mountain when Eyes came out. And so I was doing independent stuff. So it all worked. After you stopped being the staff guy there, you still worked there, obviously, a lot. Oh, and yeah. that's where you like got your breaks, like your the, the huge stuff yeah. that you started out so with. So I too. worked with Bruce Fairburn. Yeah, so my my funny connection with him is he phoned me out of the blue in the '90s and and said, "Hey, do you want to teach my kids guitar?" <laughs> so, so I taught wow. I taught Scott, and then eventually I taught both his sons guitar uh, for quite a, like three, four, or five years or something. And um, yeah. Bruce brought me into Little Mountain, so I got to see like the Scorpions and stuff like that recording and yeah. um, some Kiss stuff and all that. But that was after your like you weren't around then. Um, he was working with Mike Plotnikoff, but so at what point did did Bruce show up in, into your life? Because that was a that was a real game changer. Well, what, what happened? I guess I guess he was recording at Mushroom. Oh, okay. And um, I think like people like Jim Valance, you know, doing jingles. I became friends with Jim Valance and everybody. Basically, I guess you know, I was different from Roger and Dave, and I was doing the punk stuff. So Bruce heard about me, you know, because, you know, Peter Baring and the guys, all the musicians were telling Bruce, there's this this guy at Little Mountain that kind of gets more kind of rockier stuff because he's doing the punk stuff. So he asked me to do the Prism album, the, the uh, yeah, Armageddon. And so and for people that don't know, Bruce Fairburn was the trumpet player and producer for Prism. So basically I did. I did the Prism album, okay. and then after the Prism album, it was the first Loverboy album. And and you were strictly engineering those records. Yeah, then I was strictly engineering, but still in the palest, you know. But it, but I was, you know, like I said, um, you know, we we had moderate success, so we couldn't make a living with the palest. So we played when we could uh -huh. and and stuff. So yeah, and and then you know from Loverboy, you know, Bruce and I had a run, a great run. I'll and, say. 
Yeah. So what was that like in the early days? What was that working relationship like? Was it a good like was that a? Uh, yeah. I mean, to be quite honest, um, I was learning to be an engineer while I was making those records. Yeah. And, you know, they, basically I learned a lot from like Paul Dean, you know, busted my balls nonstop, but he made me being a better engineer. In, in what way? Like, what did he do that, that you, well, he, you know, he said, you know, this is like, like I just learned all these things about like Paul came in and he, he had this Marshall cabinet and he had a high watt head and he made his guitar and he said, this is my guitar sound recorded. It. Whereas a lot of, we had amps and stuff in the studios and guys would use them. Right. Yeah. But Paul said, this is my sound. Uh-huh record it yeah you know what i mean and um you know he, he was he was just pushing me and all those years right up as an engineer they all challenged me and the challenges always made me want to be better all those people are huge influences in my life you know in terms of that yeah yeah it doesn't feel good when they're doing that but it <laughs> makes you work yeah tell me a little bit about the the ethic the work ethic involved because i know that those records were done, like you guys were working insanely long hours and for, like it was a different era, of course, and people don't make records like that anymore, really, but, well, at all. And and you were working to tape. So, I mean, I know that it evolved to the point where, um, you know, the the amount of editing that you must have been doing and the amount of like, like I, I don't know how much like comping and things like that were involved with all the, with all the tracks that were going on, because that stuff was like epic, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it developed, you know, when I was working with Bruce, it was 24 track and there was 48. And, you know, like the great thing about Bruce, he had a great work ethic. He didn't do the long hours. We started at a decent oh, okay. hour and he went for dinner yeah. at home, came back and we worked for a couple hours. So, you know, it, and actually a lot of bands freaked out by that, but <laughs> that made them, you know, it, it's like he was a great, a great leader. Yeah. You know, and the fact that, you know, it's like it's like he worked with all these bands, but he wasn't fans of the bands. Do you know? He just knew how to do it. Do you follow uh, me? Interesting, yeah. You know what I mean? So even, you know, like even with Metallica with me, I mean, I knew about them, but I wasn't a fan. Okay. Do you know? I knew about them and I was interested. But it's so in other words, they were just people. Right. No, so when that we did Aerosmith. In a way. Yeah, but you know, but for him, when Aerosmith, I'm going like Oh my God. That's different. Right. Yeah. He's and he's going like Stephen we're in the middle of a vocal and he goes, Well, I'm going for dinner. <laughs> I just walked out, right? Like I could never do that. So I just hung with them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But actually, but you see that discipline helped Bon Jovi and all those bands. So you engineered like Slippery When Wet. Yeah. Uh, and and you mixed that too? Yeah. So I mean, those are like some of those records are and the Metallica record, obviously, like those are some of the biggest selling records of all time. Uh, but at the time, of course, like Bon Jovi was probably like they were sort of like on the verge of being dropped, I think, at that, at you know, before Slippery When mm -hmm. Wet came out or they definitely weren't like that record catapulted them. And the Aerosmith record, Aerosmith was in a probably like sort of what you would call a career slump, I would guess, at that point. Yeah. Uh, how did you feel as a engineer and a mix engineer because you didn't have a ton of experience like with mainstream big time acts like that is that 
Was it intimidating and freaky? Well, there's a reason why we we got uh, Bon Jovi is we did a Honeymoon Suite album. And they liked it. And and Richie heard the Honeymoon Suite album and told John, we got to get these two guys because listen to this record. Okay. And so tell me about your mixing life in those days. Like how long were you spending mixing a record like that? Um, you know, I, I mean, back then, um, like for instance, uh, the Bon Jovi album was six weeks total record and mix, wow. right? Okay. Which is very quick. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was really, I think it, it's always been like a day, you know, we probably work on it a day yeah. and do touch-ups the morning of the second day and then do another one. Yeah. I think that's how it went. Sometimes it'd be two, depends on the material. Okay. And you were mixing on a on the SSL or or a Neve yeah. or a, no? It was SSL and to tape from tape to tape, of course. To tape, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's like the thing is is that and what I've discovered. Uh, I, I'm going slightly off track of what you're talking about, but this is an interesting thing. So I work with maybe eight years ago. I worked with a band called American Bang, who turned into a great Nashville band, Cadillac Three, yep. right? Yep. Jaron Johnson, right? So I was mixing the album. And I was by myself and I thought, I wonder if I'm any, I wonder if I'm better. Like, so I put on working for the weekend. Okay. Mm -hmm. And compared it and sonically, it sounded exactly the same as perspective wise. And that's when I realized is what my perspective, the way I hear music, which comes from all the influences I have, people just like that perspective. And I think Bon Jovi, that was my perspective. Like, I really didn't know what I was doing. Like, there was no method. Yeah. I was just, that's the way I heard Amazing. rock. Yeah. So I guess I was lucky. And it was all that, I guess, the love of records right? Mm -hmm. Previously to that, that formed that perspective. It's just amazing to me that you were able to pull that off. Like, I don't mean that in any bad way. I just mean, like, you were pretty young and, like, didn't have a ton of experience. And those are hallmark rock and roll records. They're massive. It's crazy to me. Well, yeah, but the the thing is, is what what you learn, what you learn, is that you're part of the picture. Like in other words, uh, Slippery sounds great because the songs were great, the band were seasoned players. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Tico Torres, you know, it was easy to get a drum sound. Matt Frenette, it's easy because they're great players. Right. Do you know what I mean? They you, and you learn that do you, do you follow me yeah. it would you, you know it's almost like when i first started i eq'd too much when i recorded okay and i stopped you know i started mic technique a big thing was when clear mountain came to little mountain and recorded adams as soon as they left i was in the studio looking at what he did oh so you learned a lot and from i him. told him I, I, oh yeah mm -hmm. i mean that's what there was this great competition with engineers and mixers mm -hmm. In those days, right? Not, you know, there wasn't that thing of one guy mixes everything, you know, like, you know, it's like we're all competing because there was no kind of standard, so to speak. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So um, you're just trying to do like Ron and I were just completely obsessed with like the English records. And, you know, we got an SSL. We, I, I mean, I don't even know what the setting on the bus compressor was mm -hmm. on Slipper. I can't even remember. I was fooling around. Amazing. Was there ever any talk of like bringing in a seasoned veteran to produce those records? No. You just had the gig? And no, no. Well, I mean, Bruce 
They thought we were seasoned. <laughs> well, they go, you see, that in those days, if you did a great, great record, people noticed. Right. And then they go, oh, I want to use these people. Yeah. Which is kind right? of how things happen anyway. Like that, I know, like um, working with Motley Crue kind of led to Metallica, right? Because they dug the sound of that Motley Crue record. Oh, yeah. That's, that's yeah, just sort they, of how it They works. didn't do it because they liked the music. They did it. They liked the Sonics. Yeah. And once again, the Sonics of of Dr. Feelgood is Tommy Lee challenging me. Right. Yeah, so you were doing like some, some pretty early drum replacement on that. Well, the only way to get what he wanted was samples came out because uh, uh, the DMX had a sampler thing. Mm -hmm. The even DMX, the delay, you could sample. Yeah. So we figured out how to do it. And the great thing about that, they had the harmonizer section. So you could actually detune the sample. Oh. Yeah, you could bring it down. So we put it in. And so I could detune a kick drum. Yeah. Right? Down. But the, we were like, we were just trying things. But it's because he, he said it, rap had just started. And he said, I want a rap kick. And I'm going like, how do you do that? <laughs> But the thing is, is the other thing is, is that was interesting is um, he wanted bottom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was in rehearsal with him, he had subs. He had subs that he was by the drum pumping his own kit. He's, yeah. Okay. He, you know, he had a thumper and it was like he played and he's so I went and kid, hit his kick drum and I thought my kidneys were going to fall out. Yeah. And so basically what ended up happening, I said, well, I remember when I did this and he told me, well, we had the subs. And so what I did is I actually, to, you know, John Vertasek thought I was crazy. I said, well, let's just get subs and set them up Mike behind Tom. And mic them. No, we didn't mic them. It just, okay. it bled into the drums in the room. Oh, okay. And of course it started off as being woo. Right. And so, but we found the sweet spot, right? And all of a sudden, so we put the toms and the kick drum in. So they had this weight. Yeah. Them. So that was going down live, and then and then were you also you were also sampling off the AMS oh, yeah. and then blending that in as well. Oh yeah, nobody was doing that shit back then, were they? I don't know, because <laughs> like everyone does it now. But well, yeah, but uh, I mean, like I said, it's it's um, I mean, Tommy in terms of drum sounds, you know, he was obsessed. Like you know, it just becomes the people that you're with. You know, yeah. He like I said, he he. Well, before this, this is before this, I did Kingdom Come. That's one. That's the first album I did when I left Bruce, right? Yeah. And, you know, by then I, you know, Clear Mountain showed us the loading bay at Little Mountain. So I learned how to get ambience. And, you know, I just learned how to make drums sound like what we thought was was Led Zeppelin. Can I can I just quickly intervene and just ask you about that loading bay? I know the loading bay really well because I it was... The loading bay was sort of the divider between the room you worked in and the room that yeah. I worked in a lot, probably 15 years after you were there a lot. But uh, so what were you doing exactly? You were you that was your reverb chamber for the whole kit or what? No, what what it was is we Ron and I would put drums in the loading bay. Oh, they'd actually be in there. Well, that's what we thought the English. That's what we thought they were doing. Oh. Right. But when Clear Mountain came. He had the drums in, they opened the door. Okay. And he had mics in, so he used it as a, a chamber. Right, right. Right? And we're going like, that's brilliant. But that's what he did at, at the power station. Okay. They had a stairwell. Yeah. Same thing, right? Yeah. So that ambience and, and then that, you know. 
and double micing the the toms, one on top and the bottom and out of phase. Oh, that's a thing. That's your that's your thing too. Well, I tried it, and it's just. I mean, I could I couldn't do it no other way. What it does is you get, but there's there's a history to all of that. Is that a lot of the Beatles stuff? They actually mic drums from the bottom. Really, uh, like Abbey Road, mm -hmm. the mics were under underneath the toms. Okay, because they had the one mic atop. Yep, yeah. So to, so to bring it, they didn't put them on the top. They put them on the bottom. Interesting. Right. Yeah. So somehow Clearman did that, and basically instead of using noise gates because of the what happens with the phasing and stuff, you put the mics out of phase, right? Yep. All of a sudden, you have this core of a tom that sounds really real without any EQ. Right. And when you track that, do you bust those onto one channel and that becomes the tom sound or do you separate them out? And No. Okay. Well, okay. back then, we were, at that point, we were using, it was analog, so we just recorded all the tracks and then we'd make um, stems, mm -hmm. mix it, and then we'd overdub on another 24. And then when we mix, we'd sync them. Okay. Right? Yeah. You know, that's all stealing, right? And it's yeah. so funny, you know, having getting to know Bob and everybody did that. Like I said, of course. it's like how else are you going to do it? Like, I, how is it the way he mic, you know, different mics position? Yeah, he was the first guy that I ever saw use two mics on a on a snare drum. Okay, so I tried it, and now I know why, and I still do it. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, what was your transition to producing? So you're working with Bruce and like making all these hit records and there must have been a huge demand for you to just continue doing that forever. I mean, well, you know, um, the protocol of engineers at that point, it was like, you know, for with Bruce, I never said anything for the most part. Right. You're a silent. But then when partner. we got to be friends and stuff, I started not suggesting things, but suggesting things, mm -hmm. you know, and he asked me and, and stuff. So it, it became a very good relationship. And then, and really what I, what I decided is that I'd made enough records and just engineering and mixing, it wasn't enough. Like I saw what producing was. Mm -hmm. And in a funny way, I didn't agree with what some of the production that he was doing. You know, you just start forming opinions yep. and you learn and you, you learn how to make records and produce. Yeah been in the rooms, you know, quietly being in the rooms and soaking everything in. And then, you know, we separated. There was a bit of a financial thing that happened. Oh, really? I'm not okay. going to get into the details. Yeah. You know, like basically I, I can tell you simply that Slippery, I got paid 10 grand American uh, Canadian, Ooh, okay. which is uh, right. 
Okay. And the, I know I found out that all the other engineers in America was getting like 20,000 American. Yeah. Right. And then when I did uh, permanent vacation, he cut my wages to eight grand Canadian. Wow. That's, and that's, you're kind of going like, why are you doing that? Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and it was just, it just got to be like, I went, this is, this is not, I'm not going to get anywhere here. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. And I felt confident by doing the the punk records and learning how to be, how to make records and producing violas and everything. It just, it's just like, you know, as a person, I just went, I just can't do this okay. anymore. So there was a split, like you actually left at some point. Oh yeah. And, and did yeah. you have work to go to? Like, did you have a production gig waiting for you or not? Yeah. Kingdom Come. Okay. The, the, the A&R for uh, Bon Jovi. Yeah. He knew Derek Shulman. Uh, he was always there and he just saw what I did. So he says, you want to do this young band? I said, sure. And you did that at Little Mountain? Uh, yeah. Okay. And we did uh, some stuff in at Electric Variety, both places. Oh, cool. So yeah. in, in those days, did you do a lot of stuff that wasn't in Little Mountain or was that pretty much your base for everything? Well, I first started, uh, I mean, uh, Bruce and I started traveling. We did Crocus and different yeah. stuff in New York. Okay. And we did Honeymoon Suite in back east and stuff. So I started working in other studios yeah. and then you realize how good Little Mountain was. Do you know what I mean? It was difficult. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what, what uh, was it about that place that was so special for you guys? Because obviously like people just kept coming back there, but really like when you look at it, it's just, it just seems like it's nothing special. But the, the, this, is, this is the point is that, um, you know, Little Mountain, like we changed the monitor speakers. John says these, you know, we got uh, Yuri Timelines instead of these, you know, like four-way JBLs that didn't represent anything right. when you took it out of it, right? So basically, you know, Roger, Dave, Ron and I, John Vertasic, we just started adapting everything. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You just start finessing everything and it turns into where it be what it became. Right. You know, just constant adjustment, listening to records. What are they doing? You know? And John always had the solution and told us, right? Yeah. Like, for instance, like uh, everybody that came out alone, we all used Studer amps on Yamahas, right? And everybody goes, why Studers? Well, we, we got every power amp ever made and we did an AB and the Studer all of a sudden, we're just going like this hands down. And what it is, so many people under power NS10s. Right. And Studer are so clean and... Anybody that ever hears NS tends through a Studer, they go like, "Why haven't we been doing this?" It's and that's John Studer, right? He comes from that European. They're so clean, and you know they're three hundred watts a side. There, that's a lot. So of there was headroom, yeah. right? Most people like you know they're, they're small speakers, so they use like sixty watt amps, which would distort. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so totally. Like I said, all those things come into play like we had those the wooden ns10s that we had uh kleenex on top of the tweeters right. and then the, the pro ones came this all was happening and forming and changing yeah all of us were learning together right yeah i guess i guess my point is just that without you and vertasic and and ron obvious little mountain really just becomes something that's not like a anything spectacular it's just another room well yeah yeah but you don't even you don't even think about it. You know what I mean? It was just, you just do, right? Yeah. Uh, 
you don't know what you're doing. I'll I'll never forget when I mixed Slippery and I was doing something else and somebody said, Jimmy Iovine and Shelly Akis want to talk to you. They're on the phone. And I'm going like, and they said, how did, how did you get, what did you do on Slippery? And I said, well, you know, I just, these, this is what I do. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you know what I mean? And anyway, so. What were they, what were they fishing for? They wanted, they wanted answers. I guess they wanted, they just wanted to know what I used. So I told them what I used, you know, because everybody was using the same stuff. This is the key. Everybody uses, they all use Neve and, you know, the same mics that we used in different rooms and mm-hmm. stuff. And it comes down to that perspective. It's always about that perspective, which of course, at that point, I didn't realize. Yeah. But that's the way I heard music. Yes. Yes. That's the most important thing is that what you do is you, you learn what you, you, through your taste and your experiences, this is the way I hear music. So when you were, when you were working with some of these bands that had, I mean, it's such a different era and an era that I was not involved in where these bands would have these astronomical budgets to spend huge amounts of time in the studio. Uh, you know, like, for example, that Motley Crue album, I can imagine must have had a massive budget. Or was that the kind of thing where it just like bal- it wasn't, ballooned? It wasn't, it, no, it was like, it was two months. Okay. I thought, it, I thought that one took years. Oh God, no! Okay, so that was a couple. No, it months. was it was like it was slightly longer than Bon Jovi. Okay, I'd say it was about two months. Oh, okay. That, the long one, the longest album, of course, is the Black Album. So that one, that one comes around, and as you mentioned, it wasn't like you were a huge Metallica fan, but they were they were as big as you can get for a, like a thrash metal band at that time, probably. But you sort of kicked them into a different stratosphere. Uh, that was controversial. That one, a series of events, basically. The Cult were the opening band on the Justice Tour. Yeah. And so I went to see Billy and Ian in the band, and I stayed and watched Metallica. Now, of course, I bought I bought Justice, and I saw all the T-shirts. And actually, when I was doing a band called Black and Blue, one of the guys was friends with Lars. Okay. So they, they took the night off to go see them at a, a small hall. And so I knew about them. Yeah. And when I saw them live, I, you know, I had the Justice album, which I didn't think sounded very good. Yeah. Uh, and I saw them live and I went, oh, my God, they're nothing like that album. Hmm. They're this big, huge, monstrous, weighty band. And then because of Motley, they asked me if I wanted to to mix the record. And I said, no. Which, I said, which but I'll produce the Black Album. They, they wanted me, they were going to record it with Fleming or whatever. Okay. Right? And just mix it. I said, no, I'm not interested. I said, but I'll produce it with you. That's ballsy. Well, yeah, but it was at that point, like, it, it didn't mean anything to me. Do you know what I mean? Okay, yeah. Okay, I, you know, I did. I knew of them, but it wasn't like, I got to do it because it's based on the music I heard on Justice. I liked one. Yeah. Basically, I got one. Um, uh, and then, basically, they came up to Vancouver and played me their demos. Mm-hmm. And basically, the demos are the album. Oh, yeah. Everybody thinks I changed them. But really, like, I, you know, I heard Sandman. They d- didn't have vocals, right? Mm-hmm. But And then when I heard Sabbath True, I went, well, that's cashmere. I can do this. Right. Like, it was different. It wasn't, it wasn't algebra anymore. Uh-huh. There were songs, right? You know, so I went, I, I can do this. Okay. 
and you guys just agreed to work together. And then, and that was sort of a trying experience, I guess, because there was like a lot of infighting and and there was some resistance to your approach or something, from what I understand. Or I mean, you know, perspective. You know, the what I learned about it is it was all different. There, I'd never been with people so intense. Okay, they seem they seem really intense. Yeah, well, really intense and just this. It, it wasn't fun. Okay. It, you know, but I was drawn into it because it was, you know, the more I got to know them and know the music and the background, the more I got drawn into it. Um, but basically, you know, I asked them, you know, like, how do you record, you know, and James would do all the guitars to a click track. Yeah. And then Lars would play drums, make a mistake, they'd punch in. And then, you know, then they do they they do the vocals and then it's tedious. Bass player would overdub and then Kirk would play solos for a week and yeah. that's the album yeah and i said yeah. well i can't do that i said i have everybody in the room and they're going like what they did they didn't even know that existed because oh. their only experience was that that's what i mean it's like it wasn't out of ignorance or anything it's that's all they knew so so i said and i told them i said you know i do pre-production you know so we sat in a room and went through all the, the songs and i said i made changes like i got jason to actually play bass rather than just the guitar riff okay and stuff all that stuff right yeah. and and then i said well and the reason why we recorded is you kind of get a whole picture of what you're going to end up with a small picture but a snapshot just sticking like a couple mics in the room as you go yeah yeah mm -hmm. but i mean it, it's it's like the the idea is is performance rather than just getting it good you know, I, I explained, like, I said, tempo's so critical. And like, for instance, the way they did it, it, they couldn't change the tempo. They couldn't find a sweet spot. Like, it took, it took time to find where Sabatru, where it felt good. And you know what I mean? And that, was that just taking runs at it over and over and over and over again? Well, in pre-production, we found it. Okay. You know, and then it changed when we started recording by a beat or something, yeah. right? Because it it changes when you you end up doing that. So so those were all the things that they, it, they saw the reason why when we proceeded. Right? They learned. Yeah. Everything was. You see, the thing I was learning, and they were learning. But the amazing thing is about those guys is once they were in with me, they never, not because of they never gave a second thought working with me. How long did that take to get to that point, though? Uh full confidence. Probably six months. Oh my god! But it was individual, right? Uh -huh. It was like, do you know, like, well, just from watching the movie, like, which which was later than the period that you're talking about. But I mean, that's a lot of strong personalities and like a lot of clashing. And well, like for instance, it's Kirk is a good example. You know, like he'd never been there when they were doing basics. Like actually, and really, what what ended up happening is like because we would do full takes. Yeah, Lars would make a mistake. You know, and then we'd start again and and they're going like then they started going like, why can't you get through the song, Lars? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And they got impatient and they but then but once again, then they saw the outcome. Like I think after the first thing we recorded and they went in and they and we edited and then they went, Oh, we get it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And with Kirk, um, the funny thing is there's the solo part of the the film, right? And um what it ended up happening is he came and he thought like, oh, I'll bang this off in a couple of weeks, right? And it's like, he didn't have anything. 
he came in and just played. He was wanking. Mm -hmm. And what happened is I got the assistant to take the solos that he, when he wasn't thinking of, off all the takes and put it on cassette. And he listened to it. And that's where all the solos came from. Oh, no kidding. Just uh, the sort of the... You see, he wasn't thinking about it. So he was just playing, which was great. That's a good producer move right there. I, I just had to adapt. <laughs> Everything's about adapting and not being scared of the moment. And that comes down to the school. Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid to stick my neck up because I don't care what people think of me. Right. That's the, the biggest thing in my career is uh, when I had the chance to be in a studio, I just didn't care what other people thought yeah. of me or, you know, or my abilities because I saw that as a wall. So when you go back to work with a band like that again, are you kind of like, were you nervous going and making another Metallica record because of it must have been draining? It must have taken a ton of time. That would be something to consider, I guess. When I we when we stopped after we when we mastered and we all went our separate ways. I mean, Randy Saab and I just said we're never going really? to room as yet. <laughs> and then unfortunately, it became really big. I'll say we had no idea. Really, there was no there was no thought at the time like this. Well, they like, did, uh -huh. and everybody said, you know. Uh, but I, you know, what it did to me personally and everything else, it just, I just like, I couldn't do that again. So, but of course I did. So how'd you get back? Why, why'd you do it again? Well, because it was big, <laughs> okay. you know, like, yeah. it, you know, like it, when you're, you get that perspective, like of when you're in it, you don't really know where it went. You know, like if you listen to the, nothing sounds like the Black Album. No, I know. That's a very unique sounding record. Yeah, nothing nothing sounds like that. And that's once again, they challenged me. Uh -huh. And I challenged them. Yeah. Do you, do you follow me? It, it becomes this, this thing that, like, so uh, when you look back at it and you go like, yeah, this is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So it, it, it ends up being all that work was obviously worth it. Yeah, and I guess the time in between, you had time to just- like, Yeah, yeah. I mean, stuff. they went on the road for three years. Right. When you came back together, you were the bass player in the band, and that's- No. No? It was load and reload. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, you've done a ton of that stuff. Oh my god! <laughs> so, yeah, I'm 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 skipping ahead, but the but eventually, so like load and reload. Yeah, they wanted to, they they have lives in San Francisco and wives and kids, mm -hmm. so they said we want to do it in San Francisco, but we want it to sound the same. And I said, well, I looked at the record plant in Sausalito, and the ceiling's about as high as this ceiling. Oh yeah, in the studio, right? It was great for Fleetwood Mac, but it's not for Metallica, right? I said, I, I can't, we can't make a record here. And they said, why? Well, the rooms, I said, the rooms are the right size, but the ceiling's so low, there's no, there's no vibe here. It's dry as a bone. So what did they do? Tore the ceiling out? They built the studio. Oh, they did? Yeah. Okay. They raised the roof wow. and Metallica paid for it. Oh my God. <laughs> Good suggestion. <laughs> yeah. So that was a meeting. And so Metallica paid for it, oh, and God. they raised the ceiling up to like 20 feet or something. And that's where you did those records? That's where we did load. Okay. Amazing. And still, even though the same EQs, the same mics, the same drums, everything, it never sounds the same because that whole process of, it's just not the same. Not because of the room. Yeah. You see, this is the point. It's It's not... Like a lot of people, they go like, why do you let people see what you do and tell people the mics and stuff? Because they're never going to get what I get because of my perspective. 
Do you follow me? Of course. Yeah. You can have the same equipment. You can use the same EQs, same mic placement. It's not going to be, it might be kind of like it. And we couldn't even match ourselves. Right. Because it's based on that time and everything. Yeah. In the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, you've, you've taken some really interesting kind of left turns. Like you've done Michael Buble, working with Jan Arden, uh, Tragically Hip. Well, you see, yeah, but you see, the, the thing is, is like with Michael Buble. So uh, he worked with a producer and he had this song called Everything. And, you know, he's managed by Bruce Allen, my manager. And and Michael thought the song was great. And the producer said, no, it's a piece of crap. <laughs> I'm not going to record it. So Bruce says, told Michael, well, I'm going to get you to put the studio with Bob. And Buble, the guy that did Metallica, I don't get it. And he said, yeah, just trust me. That's the previous stuff, the the jingles and everything. I'd recorded strings. Yeah, you, it, it, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Nobody knows that they think Metallica was where I started. Right. I had twenty years of being an engineer and being in the room. Totally. I knew how to do it. Yeah. Right. You get the right musicians. I hired the right musicians, and we we did a couple takes. And Michael Bublé went, "Oh, where did right? where did you do that record?" Uh, at the. Uh, it was the warehouse. The warehouse in Vancouver. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. that was basically a little mountain rebuilt. John Vertasek yeah. and Ron, Ron obviously designed that. What about working with the Tragically Hip? Like, that's another band that, like, you're walking into a bit of a hornet's nest there, I'd imagine, as far as, like, guys that have known each other since probably grade six. And you're a bit of an outsider. They've got a sound. They've got a reputation. They've got a whole history already. And then you have to come in and, like, that's a, that's a tricky production gig in a, in a lot of ways. Well, you know, initially when, you know, once again, it's, we did pre-production, yeah. um, um, which kind of you, you find a way to do it. Um, but really, um, I think at that point, you know, knowing Gord and basically he, he wanted something new. Yeah. Right. You know, because they, you know, was it their idea to work with you? Yeah. yeah. You know, oh, basically, um, actually Gord flew to Maui okay. and we had lunch together. Yeah. And he just kind of told me, you know, we, we just talked and hit it off right away. We talked about our families, but we talked about what I do and everything, you know. And of course, once, you know, everybody has like, he's the guy that did Metallica, you know, and then, but they knew me as the Paolas, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they knew I, it wasn't all about Metallica, yep. right? So then we just have this great meeting and we hang out for a couple of days and then I go there and do pre-production and did you do it at their place out in Kingston? Yeah. Okay. It wasn't Kingston. We actually we ended up where did we record it? Uh yeah, we recorded it uh, yeah, in Toronto. Oh, in Toronto, okay, yeah. No, not yeah. We didn't use their studio. The second time was their studio. Um, but um basically I just helped them kind of focus on what was best about them. Okay. I mean, the the, the great thing about the tragically hip, it's like the stones. There's a sound to the band. Yeah playing together now you can you know like um the history i know a lot about the stones and it, it's like the stones can you know start me up with a song that they had that they'd been working on for 10 years and they got ended up with started it was a reggae song right mm -hmm. you know the tragically hip don't have that that thing right so basically i just said you know you gotta you need more of this but you know and they 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 didn't have the perspective because I was coming in as as not only a, as a producer, but also a songwriter and just going like, 
you know, what it is, is it's not smart. It's wisdom. You know, I've made, they'd made like six records. I've made 30 records and you learn patterns and you learn what you have to do to make a record. Yeah. And they were, they weren't hip to kind of that. Okay. Interesting. No pun intended, right? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, of course I do. Yeah. And so you, I just brought that and world container was, um, was really kind of easy and, and we had a lot of fun. Was there a lot of pre-production though, like getting to that point? No, just regular. Okay. I think it was a week of pre-production and, you know, and they, they all play and they have a sound They, they do. and they love the sounds and they love, you know, we, it was fine. And the second album, we are the same. Uh, it changed a little bit because um, they kind of were in a different place. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, basically what ends up happening with me is I figure out about the band and kind of in a way what what where the where it comes from yeah. sort of and I end up you know maybe sometimes mistakenly go with that that the strong the alpha male and the alpha male's gourd right and we started becoming friends and he said I want to go to different places right yep. and then the writing thing you know who brings what it was I don't know. So Gord was writing a lot on his own, bringing it, and that was different. Was he doing stuff other than just the lyrics? Was he writing music too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that changed, right? And so, and of course, I like that because it's melodic and stuff like that. So it was a little more difficult to do. And and then um, we cut it at the house and uh, at their studio, and then we went to Maui, and and basically the way I work uh, when I do vocals. You know, I can't really finish a song until the vocals and the lyrics are there. Yeah. And then you know what to do, right. right? So, you know, we they weren't there. They came out to to kind of come in and do some overdubs later. We had basic tracks and stuff. And so I'm working with Gordon. I'm doing all these backgrounds because it's suggested and I just do it, right? Yeah. And they came and they're going like, you did all the backgrounds? <laughs> Like I did, we did work without them. Yes. Which is always not good, right? When you do work with not everybody there, it's, it's like, they go like, why did you do this? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that caused a bit of this, a bit of stuff. So did you have to backtrack and like get rid of that stuff or? No, we okay. just, but you know, we kind of, I satisfied them, et cetera. Yeah. But it, it, it rocked the boat. Definitely. I can, I can imagine. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's, it's funny because I talked to Johnny Faye because he played on some of the Gordon Bob stuff that came out, that's just come out. Have you heard it? I haven't heard it yet, but I've I heard it's cool. I want to check it out. Well, there's three songs that are released. You can you can hear them on YouTube okay. or iTunes. It, the full album's May, but we're releasing songs over six months. Okay. Anyway, um, as it turned out, just talking to him because of the release of the Gordon Bob, they've all come to be quite enamored with that album. Oh, nice. Right? Now they get it. And they had like a whole public group of songs that were bits and pieces yeah. that they wanted to develop, but we were like 10 songs in and I, I didn't want to work on another six songs. And, you know, yeah. so I basically, what I did is why don't we make those six songs a kind of like a one song? Oh yeah. Like a journey. Yeah. Right. And they went for it okay. and then they freaked out about it. Really? But it's actually amazing. So who, so who is that project exactly? Like who's all in it? The band, just everybody, the whole, the whole hit. Just everybody, okay. but that's a new thing. You've got this record in the can with Paul Rogers. That's not out, is it? No, it's coming out. That's exciting. Is it kick ass or what? Yeah, somebody basically somebody else 
did the basic tracks and stuff. And Randy Staub was that he was friends with the family because I think his uh, Randy's wife works financially with Paul Rogers and stuff. And Randy got in, was supposed to make it. And Randy phones me and he goes, Bob, this album ain't finished. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's you know. So uh, he says, would you work in a, with Paul Rogers? I said, yeah, I'll do it for free. Yeah. yeah, I just wish I did. You know, I just wanted to be in the room with Paul Rogers. Right, so basically, I just went through each song with Keith and Chris. Okay. And Paul was there and Cynthia, uh, his wife, who really was started producing the album. And we just touched up every song. That's kind of a cool way to work, actually, like coming in at that late stage and just like, pulling up a song and just like, how can we make this a complete work? Yeah, they, they, they you know, they, but, you know, they had worked with, you know, they, the guy that did it, uh, Ray Roper, he did an excellent job. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Um, but it's a certain perspective. And, you know, um, in the early days when I was uh, a mixer, you get, you, you, you know, you'd get handed stuff that you go like, it's not quite done. So you, you talk to them and you, you just learn how to fix stuff up, yep. let's put it that way. So yeah, so I just had a blast. And there was one obvious choice was that there's barely any kind of like what I would consider standard stuff for bad company and free, right? I'm a free fan. Sure, me too. Hence the guitar, the Paul Kossoff guitar, right? And so I got Keith to play like licks all the way through the songs. And Paul's going like, I haven't done that in like decades. Why not? Do you follow me? Yeah. So right away, he loved Keith and Keith's the guy that just like, Keith Scott is amazing, oh, yeah. right? So two days with Keith and then a day and a half with Chris and we did all the songs. Amazing. And they were blown away by both. And Randy mixed it and it sounds great. Killer. Oh, and I did uh, with Bublé on the last album, we did a duet with Willie and Michael. Yeah. And basically, because Willie, he actually sang it twice. He never sings things. Wow. He spent a day singing it and he didn't like it and he did it again. Okay. And it's staggering. Were they did they actually do it together? Basically what happened is is we cut the track and we needed a solo. And I said, Well, I'm friends with, with Willie and I'll just see if he wants to do a solo, right? Yeah. And then Michael says, Do you think he'd want to sing on it with me? Awesome. And right, basically when I, I suggested it to them and and they were kind of the manager and everybody was kind of hum ho and stuff. And, and I said, you know what? I'm going to send the track we have. They heard the track and they all phoned back and in like three minutes. And they said, yeah, Willie wants to do it. Wicked. So he actually sang it twice. Wow. And Annie, his wife said, he never does that. <laughs> I've heard. Yeah. He just waltzes in and you get- You got to hear it. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's crazy on the new last Buble album. Okay. And Willie does a solo and plays guitar through it. Uh, it's an amazing track. In Maui, you've got this great setup, right? Like this, is it a full studio setup? It was. Yeah. It isn't now. It's not. Did you tear it down or what, what happened to the... Pretty much. Yeah. Really, it was that the budgets changed. Yeah. And to fly a band over there. Yeah, I can imagine. With, and So just people weren't coming. You know, and even the studio to keep the... You know, what it ended up being is like, because I do projects, I just don't mix. Maybe if I was just a mixer, I'd keep it going. Yeah. Send it to me, blah, 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 blah. But because I record and, and produce... Um, it was, it just sat there empty. It was like, you know, 10 grand for air conditioning every month. Yeah. Right. 
So I kind of closed it down. Okay. Is it, is it on your property? Like it's where you live? Yeah. Okay. What happened is I just built a mix room. Yeah. Okay. John designed it. It's, it sounded, I got the last 6,000 SSL made. Wow. Which is the board I used on the black album. Yep. And, um, it's great mix room. He tuned it. It was fantastic. And I, and then I recorded Vuka Salt. Oh yeah. They wanted to record it. And we, and I, Basically, I did it in a house. I didn't think people would want to come to Maui. I was wrong. Yeah, man. No shit. Yeah. Um, and so after Veruca Salt, I converted my garage to the studio. Okay. Yeah. And it, it's, it's an amazing sounding room. That's where I do work now. Now I do basically on my laptop with all my gear around it. Yeah. Like most people are making records right now. Yeah. You know, do you still have a shit ton of gear or have you started let that? Oh, fuck. Yeah. I can barely get into my studio. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) I've got all the gear. Yeah. Now I just use the plugins, right? And my theory on the plugins here is like, so I'm a big Neve guy. Uh Now the Tenia one is very close, but it isn't the same. But it's still, if you just get out of the comparing thing and you use it, it's very useful. It's amazing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. All the things, you know, and, and, you know, a 250 is like, I've got a 250 and it's hissy and it's, it breaks. And now it's 179 and I got a 250, you know what I mean? So I'm a big fan of, of that. I like it too. Yeah. I've got a API here and, and same with the API, like with the universal audio plugins, they're cool, but they're not, they don't sound exactly like what this does, but it's a different thing. You just forget about that and you just. You know, I was talking to Mike Fraser about this. He's going like, I don't know if I can mix in the box and blah, blah, blah. And I said, and I told him my story about perspective. And I said, Mike Fraser, you're going to get to the same place because that's how you hear it. He said, well, I never thought about that. Because you're Mike Fraser. Yes. It'll always sound like Mike Fraser because he's amazing. Yeah. 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 Well, there you go. thank you so much, Bob. I, I, I really appreciate the time and, and it's been great talking to you. And nice to meet you finally, actually, too. Yeah, it's good to meet you. I heard you were at the warehouse a lot. Yeah, yeah. I uh, before I moved to Nashville, so like I worked at the factory a ton, and then that place sort of shut down. It's kind of back now, but it shut down, and then I I ended up working a lot at the at the warehouse and loved it. Yeah. It's such a it's a great oh my god, it's so amazing. <laughs> yeah, if, yeah, if I could just make records there all day, every day, I'd be perfectly happy. Yeah. Yeah, but I can't. I like the windows too. I know it's not a place, right? It's yeah. It's it's basically the best studio I've ever worked in. Really? Oh yeah. And that console's insane. I love that. Con- I love the way that that. It's hard, you have to try hard to make something sound bad on in that <laughs> console. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's special. Anyway, it was fun. Thanks, yeah. Bob. Okay. Have a good day. Aloha. Thank you for listening, everybody. That was my conversation with Bob Rock. What a pleasure to speak with that guy. Hope you enjoyed listening to it, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. It's going to be the final episode of Season 6. Looking forward to bringing it to you, and we shall see you then. Over and out. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is produced at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee by Steve Dawson. Please remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this season, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, Isotope, and Spectra 1964. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 